0: Turn with me this morning to 1 Samuel, chapter 18. 1 Samuel, chapter 18. We are continuing our study this morning through the life of David. David is certainly a popular character from the Old Testament. We know a great deal about his life, perhaps more about the life of David than any other Old Testament character. He is my favorite character. From the Old Testament, I believe him to be the most Christ-like man in all the Old Testament. I trust that you will see why I think that the further we go. 1 Samuel chapter 18. Last week, we of course looked at the most known and most well-known passage dealing with David. That is the confrontation of David as a youth with the giant Goliath. We'll be referring back to that just a little bit today. But we want to go on and look at the subsequent events. First Samuel chapter 18. I'm going to read the first 16 verses. Actually, we'll be covering this morning a section from chapter 18 down through chapter 20. But let us read the first 16 verses of First Samuel 18. And it came to pass when he had made an end of speaking unto Saul, that the soul of Jonathan was knit with the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would let him go no more home to his father's house. And then Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was upon him and gave it to David and his garments, even to his sword and to his bow and to his girdle. And David went out whithersoever Saul sent him. And behaved himself wisely. And Saul sent him over the men of war, and he was accepted in the sight of all the people, and also in the sight of Saul's servants. And it came to pass as they came, when David was returned from the slaughter of the Philistine, that the women came out of all cities of Israel, singing and dancing, to meet King Saul with tabrets, with joy, and with instruments of music. And the women answered one another as they played, and said Saul hath slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very wroth, and the saying displeased him. And he said, They have ascribed unto David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed but thousands. And what can he have more but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day and forward, and it came to pass on the morrow that the evil spirit from the Lord came upon Saul, and he prophesied in the midst of the house. And David played with his hand, as at other times. And there was a javelin in Saul's hand. And Saul cast the javelin, for he said, I will smite David even unto the wall with it. And David avoided out of his presence twice. And Saul was afraid of David, because the Lord was with him. And was departed from Saul. Therefore Saul removed him from him. And made him his captain over a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David behaved himself wisely in all his ways. And the Lord was with him. Wherefore when Saul saw that he behaved himself very wisely. He was afraid of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David. Because he went out and came in before them. We find that after the great victory over Goliath and the Philistines that David is taken by Saul to leave his father's house and to come and to live there in the place where Saul lives to serve him. We find that Saul, after the Spirit of God departed from him, the Scripture says an evil spirit from the Lord came to him, afflicted him. He was smitten with depression, with uh, being down. And they looked around for someone that could help soothe him. They were looking for a picker. Really is what they were looking for. And one fellow says, I've seen this picker uh, down there in Bethlehem. He's pretty good. So they said, okay, you go get that picker, and let's bring him here, and let's let him pick some for Saul. Now, you may say that's sort of facetious. What do you mean, a picker? Well, the very word "psalm" is from a Hebrew word that means to pluck, or pick, we would say. It is the word for a song that is sung to instrumental music, that is, to picked or plucked music. It is interesting to me that there are those in our day who say that no instruments are to be used in the singing unto the Lord, and yet what do they sing? They sing picked psalms. That's what psalm is, a picked psalm. But they're not going to use a picker to pick. Well, anyway, that's chasing another rabbit. But the bottom line is is that David was brought into Saul's household first to soothe him when he was afflicted of this Evil spirit. But we find very quickly the relationship between David and Saul goes downhill. As they return from the great battle, the great victory, the maidens of Israel come out to greet the returning army, and they begin to sing this song that they've composed for the occasion. Saul has slain his thousands. David Well, I've got it backwards. David has slain his tens of thousands. Saul has slain his thousands. Ain't ain't right. David, his tens of thousands. And that song does not go over very well with King Saul. Saul reacts to this with a jealous rage. Can you imagine this leap of logic? Well, what will they give him more? They might as well give him the kingdom if they've described to him tens of thousands. And from that day, his attitude towards David changes from one of friendship to one of hostility And Saul now begins to scheme behind the scenes, sometimes openly, sometimes not quite so openly, to, in fact, kill David. First of all, he tries to kill David himself. As Saul is sitting there, enjoying his little pity party, feeling sorry for himself. David is playing the lyre, an instrument very similar to our guitar over there across the room. There is a javelin by Paul's side, Saul's side, and he picks it up, and he hurls it at David, trying to literally, as we say, nail his hide to the wall. David flees. We find not only happened once, happened twice. Then secondly, he tries to trick David. David, you remember the story was back when David came to the battlefield, he's seeing the situation, Goliath coming out, defying the armies of God, and he begins to ask the question, now what's the guy going to get? Who kills this guy? And they say, oh, well, he'll become a rich man. The king will give him his daughter to marry. David, you can just sort of see him jumping up and down. What a deal, what a deal. Everybody else shaking in their boots. Well, what about that deal of the king's daughter? Well, Saul comes up with this scheme. First of all, the oldest girl gets married, but he has a second girl who is certainly in love with David. Michael is her name. And he says to David, I tell you what, you didn't marry my daughter, but you're a poor fellow. You know, you don't have much money for a dowry, so I tell you what, bring me a hundred foreskins of the Philistines, and we'll let that go as a dowry. I would not dwell a whole lot on that situation, just to say that I assume that meant that he had to kill the Philistines, <clears throat> and, uh, well, the Indians brought back scouts, I mean, you know, it's sort of common in days of primitive warfare. But the bottom line was that Saul did this, scheming so that David would be killed in the attempt to bring back this rather unusual dowry. But David surprises him again brings not back 100, but 200 forced heads of the Philistines. Well, there goes that attempt to put away David. And then finally, Saul has had his fill of David. He sends his men while David is at home in bed with his wife. He sends his men to go watch his house and to arrest him when he comes out of it the next morning and to kill him. But in the night, you read where Michael, David's wife, lets him down through a window and he escapes and flees from the presence of King Saul. He goes out into the field, out hiding himself. We find that Jonathan, of course, Jonathan has a much different opinion of David. Oh, there's a beautiful picture here of the love that Jonathan has for David and how he deals with David. Jonathan goes out and meets with David privately. And they arrange the next day. He's going to try to feel his father out about what what is his father's intentions towards David. David's convinced he's going to kill him. Jonathan just can't believe that his father would do such a thing to this one who has served his father so amicably. And so he says, there's going to be this feast, and you're going to be missing. The feast of the new moon. Your seat will be empty, and Saul's going to want to know why. You're supposed to be there. But he says, I'll explain to him that you got called away to Bethlehem, called away to your father's house, that you're busy down there, and we'll see what his reaction is, and by that I think I can determine what his intentions towards you are. And you remember they have the little scheme where the boy would come out and fetch Jonathan's arrows. And if Jonathan shot the arrows short of the boy, that was good news. That meant that Saul was ready to be reconciled to David. But if he shot the arrows over the boy's head, that was a signal that things had turned bad. And so Jonathan went out with the lad the next day and took him out to boy to fetch his arrows. And he shot them way over the boy's head, which of course was the signal to David that things had gone downhill. In fact, that very night when they met at supper, David's seat was empty. Saul was filled with rage. And as Jonathan came to his friend's defense, he said to his father, what has he done? Why are you acting this way towards him? Saul takes the javelin and tries to throw it through his own son. Jonathan Even must flee the wrath of his father. So Jonathan meets out in the field with David, his friend, and tells him of the situation. They make a very beautiful covenant. In chapter 20, the covenant, the promise that they make between each other is a very striking thing. And David then goes into hiding. And we'll be looking at that in subsequent messages next week. I was trying to think of a good title. I think God's man on the run is a good way way of putting it. The Jews looked for their Messiah to somehow come as he was the son of David to recapitulate David's life to some degree. And indeed, the Messiah did recapitulate David's life. For David, like his greater son, was also rejected by those who should have received him. But we'll leave that to next week. I want this morning to try to paint a portrait in words. They say a picture is worth a thousand words the guy who said that obviously had not seen my pictures. Uh, I'm going to give you the thousand words. You knew it was coming as a substitute for a picture. But I'm going to try to paint a verbal portrait for you this morning of the three major characters in this section from chapter 18 through chapter 20 of First Samuel. First of all, there is King Saul. Secondly, there is David. And thirdly, there is Jonathan. Search the Scripture as you will, and you will have a hard time coming up with a better picture of a person who is consumed with self and sin than King Saul. We, we've spoken so many times about the contrast between the kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of Satan the spiritual principles that undergird those kingdoms. I think you can see it in that expression of Satan where he declares, I will ascend to the throne of the Most High. I I will exalt my throne, my seat above the stars. You know, I want to sit where God's sitting. And you look at that statement. He says five times, I will, I will, I will. Contrast that to our Lord sweating, as it were, great drops of blood, In the shadows of Gethsemane, saying, not my will, but thy will be done. Now there, in a striking contrast, is the difference between the kingdom of Satan erected upon this premise of I'm going to do it. I want it. It's for me. You want to see it in action? Look at old Nebuchadnezzar. Back there in the book of Daniel, as one night he comes out and he surveys that magnificent city, the greatest city in the world in his day. You may remember that the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, which he built for his median princess, was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And he walks out of his palace and he surveys that great city and he says, Is this not the great Babylon that I have built for my glory? I mean, I did it. Look what I did, and it's all because of me, and it's all for me. And God said, that's it, buddy. And he was struck down, and they literally put him out to pasture on all fours, eating grass like a cow, with his hair growing long, his nails and claws. And Daniel tells us, till he knew that the Most High reigns in the heavens and gives the kingdoms to whomsoever He will. There's that satanic principle that undergirds his kingdom. And you say, oh, Brother Mark, you know, those are just unusual, unusual demonstrations. My friend, you see it every day that you live. You can see it out in the workplace. You can see it at school. You can see it in homes. If you want to know to which kingdom you belong, just ask this question. Are you concerned with your will or God's will? Who do you sound like? I will, or not my will, but thy will be done. Well, you can't see a better picture of what it looks like, someone who is dominated by this satanic principle of self-centeredness, self-glorification, self-exaltation, self-gratification, than King Saul, His self-will has already been exhibited in the fact of his disobedience to God. You remember those two events for which the kingdom would be taken away for him? First of all, there was his selfish intrusion into the priest's office. You know, I don't care that God requires a priest to do this function. Why should I not be able to sacrifice? I mean, who does God think He is? Doesn't He know that He's got to be an equal opportunity employer? I mean... He can't discriminate against me. And so he intrudes into the priest's office. And then secondly, when he is told to go slaughter the Amalekites, he comes back leading a trail of the best of the sheep, the best of the oxen, old King Agag. Because, you see, he's had a better idea. Well, I know better than God what needs to be done. Let's turn this into a religious thing. Let's have a, let's have a church service. Let's sacrifice to God those things that he has condemned. And so we see the idea of here is a man who knows better than God what he must do. Knows better than God what is to be done. But secondly, we see the principle of self-exaltation and self-glorification exhibiting itself in his jealousy towards David. Here is a man who cannot stand for the glory, for the adulation, for the praise to go to someone else rather than to himself. He cannot rejoice in the fact that David has conquered the Philistine. He demands and is incensed if the praise and the glory does not come to himself. They tell us, those who are precise as far as the English language is concerned, that there is a little bit of difference between jealousy and envy. They're very similar terms. But envy... Technically speaking, is that bad feeling you get when something good happens to somebody else. You do know that feeling we're talking about. When something good happens to somebody else, that that feeling that arises in your heart is what's called envy. Jealousy, technically speaking, is wanting for yourself what went to the other person. Now, usually you don't find one without the other. In fact, both seem to be kissing cousins. They both come hand in hand. But oh my, you do see it exhibited here in the life of King Saul. His envy, his jealousy. Not only envious because the praise has gone to David, but his jealousy. He must have, he feeds on that, what shall we say, feeding his self-esteem. Building him up. The praises of his people. That's what floats his boat. And then thirdly, his self-centeredness in all his actions. I've already described to you how he used his own daughter. And here's a man who doesn't love people. He loves himself. He uses people. He uses his own daughter to try to get David killed. You know he's going to put her in this little thing where he can go out and get killed in his attempt to come up with this rather unusual dowry that he requires. But let me show you something even more striking than that. Look in First Samuel chapter 20, down in verse 30. That night that David's chair was missing, it was empty. When David was out in hiding. When Jonathan comes to his aid, I want you to look closely at what happens there at the table. First Samuel 20 and verse 30. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, and he said unto him, Thou son of the perverse rebellious woman, do not I know that thou hast chosen the son of Jesse to thine own confusion and to the confusion of thy mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse, that's David, liveth upon the ground, thou shalt not be established nor thy kingdom. Wherefore, now send and fetch him unto me, for he shall surely die. Do you see what Saul's saying? Jonathan, I'm doing this for you. Don't you see, Jonathan? As long as he's alive, the kingdom is not going to be secure to you. You're my only son. You're the next in line to the throne. And as long as this guy lives, you're not securing that. I'm doing this for you. Hogwash. Read on. Verse 32, And Jonathan answered Saul his father and said unto him, Wherefore shall he be slain? What hath he done? And Saul cast a javelin at him to smite him. I'm doing this for you. Shrunk. I have to kill you. I'm doing this for you. Oh, let's get cut to the chase here. He's doing this. For his own jealous, envious reasons. He has been given the kingdom. God gave it to him. And now God is taking it away. And he is clawing. He is scratching. He is grasping onto it with all his might. But my friend, when God gives you something, there's nothing on earth that can prevent its coming. But when God takes it away, I don't care what it is, power, prestige, position, money, it's like trying to hold on to quicksilver. It's like having a handful of sand and the harder that you squeeze it, the more it leaks through the cracks. Look at Saul, cleaving with all his might, trying his best he can to hang on. You can't have a better picture of the principle that Jesus espoused when he said that the man who will keep his life will lose it. But the man who will lose it will keep it. Saul just can't bring himself to let go. To let go. Oh, with all his might, he hangs on. And oh, what a pathetic creature Saul turns into. Have you ever seen a more striking portrait of a miserable person than Saul? Wallowing in self-pity. Feeling sorry, depressed. Look at how I'm being treated. Look at the fact that I'm not getting what I deserve. Nobody's treat. Nobody knows the truth. You know, you know the kind. I told you before. I'll tell you again. There's not a more miserable person on the face of this earth than the man who has self at the center of His universe. Miserable He is and miserable He shall remain. Miserable He shall be exactly to the extent that He makes self the center of His universe. The more self-consumed we are, the more miserable we are. Blessing life according to our Lord comes not through Being served but serving. Not through getting, but giving. What is it he said? You know, we read in Sunday school this morning, a saying of our Lord. It's recorded nowhere in the Gospels. But in the book of Acts, Paul says, remember how our Lord said these words? It is better. Paul, let's say it like we'd say it here in Mississippi. It is more better. (laughs) It's more better to give than to receive. You say, preacher, you got to be kidding. That's not what people out there in the world think, and that's why they're miserable. God's people are to live their lives by a completely different principle. That it's not through getting, it's through giving. That's what floats our boat. That's what thrills us. I've told you before, if you have the heart of a servant rather than the heart of one who must be served, my, what a deal. There's millions of people out there in the world that are just handy to them to let you serve them. You'll never run out of folks to serve if serving floats your boat. Now, if ruling others floats your boat, you're going to have a hard road to hope. Because everybody else out there wants to rule. Everybody else out there wants to be chief, number one. They will not fight you to let you serve them. But they'll fight you tooth and nail to let you rule them. The Christian life is not only the right thing. I know, you know, it's too often that in Christian circles we've sort of become you know neo evangelical psychologists. You ought to be a Christian so you can be happy. That's not true, my friend. If you're never happy, if you have never smile one time from the time that you bow the knee to King Jesus, you still ought to be a Christian. Because it's right. Because this priest pleases please, God. But oh, my friend, there's blessing and byproducts that come to us in knowing Christ, in receiving life. And one of those is a happy life, because we've got things in order for the first time in our life. And then there's the portrait. Before I leave Saul, I must remind you of one thing, that there were times, and there are times in Saul's career, where he knows he's not doing right. He's sorry, but look back in First Samuel 19, First Samuel 19, this is the first time Jonathan his son intercedes. You'll see back in First Samuel 19, Saul spoke to Jonathan his son, and to all his servants that they should kill David. He's telling everybody, now you ought to go out and kill this guy. In verse two, you'll see that David uh, Saul, uh, Jonathan, I'm sorry, goes out um, to deal with his father in verse four. Jonathan spoke good of David, and to Saul his father said unto him, Let not the king sin against his servant, against David, because he hath not sinned against thee, and because his works have been to you very good. He did put his life in his hand and slew the Philistine, and the Lord wrought a great salvation for all Israel. Thou sawest it and did rejoice. Wherefore then wilt thou sin against innocent blood to slay David without a cause? And Saul hearkened unto the voice of Jonathan. And Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be slain. I swear, you're right. And I swear, I won't kill him. How long did that last? You know, it reminds me of the old drunk. He's just so sorry. He's just so sorry. He's so sorry. Sorry for the way he's treated his family. Sorry for the way he's performed on the job. Oh, he just doesn't want to be this way anymore. But there is no power to the intention. It is all temporary. And as it was here in the life of Saul, it would soon wear off and he'll be back after David's blood. My friends, this happens time and time and time again in the life of King Saul. Well, let's leave Saul for a moment. Let's take another look Let's look at another character here in these chapters, and that is, of course, this young man by the name of David. I tell you, after you study Saul's life, and I guess it's just because he tends to remind me so much of myself, that David comes upon, I guess, the picture that we see of Saul. First of all, notice that contrasted with the fear, the envy, the jealousy, and especially that fear of David. Did you notice that the more David did things right, the more Saul feared him? Isn't that strange? I've often said that you you don't like your enemies lying about you. There's something worse than that. It's your enemies telling the truth about you. That's really bad. I mean, that's sinking low when they start telling the truth. Well, that's the way it is. The more Saul saw that David was doing wisely and doing right, the more it made him tremble. The more he realized that God was with David. But against that backdrop of Saul's fear, We see David's faith. Oh, Steve mentioned a little earlier today about this confidence factor. And I agree. Everybody to live a productive life needs to be a confident person. That's not my disagreement with the pot psychologists of our day. The question is, from whence cometh that confidence? What are we confident in? You'll notice that David, when he came to battle Goliath to his brothers, they thought he was an arrogant little fellow. Oh, Goliath, his older brother, says, I know you. You you know, you've run off. Who's who you left those sheep with you're supposed to be watching? I know you. I know the naughtiness and the pride of your heart. You see, David coming upon the scene and says, Well, I'd take him. Look to the others as nothing but a cocky arrogance, even to his own brothers. But you look closely at where does this confidence of David come from? Go back to the the account of the encounter between the Philistines, Goliath, and David. In chapter 17, as David and Goliath meet, and remember now that Goliath is about nine feet Six inches tall, has armor on that weighs about 200 pounds, has a spear that the head of the spear was like a 16-pound shot put. I mean, this guy, well, he's intimidating. But it's not just his looks that are intimidating. Look at his speech. First Samuel 17, verse 42. And when the Philistine looked about and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth and ruddy and of fair countenance. And the Philistine said unto David, Am I a dog that thou comest to me with staves? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give thy flesh unto the fowls of the air and to the beasts of the field. Just come over here. Come a little closer. I'm gonna feed you to the birds. Now, a guy, nine foot six, standing in front of a young boy. Is that intimidating or what? Listen to the response of David. Then said David to the Philistine, Thou comest to me with a sword and with a spear and with a shield, but I come to thee in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom thou hast defied this day, where the Lord deliver thee into mine hands, and I will smite thee and take thine head from thee. I will give the carcasses of the hosts of the Philistines this day unto the fowls of the air, to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Now, my friend, that's confidence standing in front of a guy that's nine foot six inch tall and saying, I'm going to feed you to the birds. But is it cocky arrogance? Is this some sort of false bravado like you see on the Super Bowl today? Look what I can do. I would say it's of a different sort because the Philistine saw it as a battle between a big soldier and a young boy. David saw it as a battle between the Creator and a creature. And the creature didn't stand a chance. He was confident, cocky, but in the power of his God. Not in his own skill, not in his own ability, even as he stands before King Saul. And Saul says, what makes you think? You can fight this guy. You're just a boy. This guy's been a warrior since he was a boy. And David says, I was watching no sheep, and the lion came, and I ripped him apart. The bear came, and I ripped him apart. And he said, the same God who delivered me out of the paw of the lion and out of the paw of the bear will deliver that Philistine into my hands this day. Oh, he's cocky, all right. braggadocious, But in the power and in the might of his God, he's glorying, but not in himself. Glorying in the ability of the one who will just use him as an instrument. That's... The faith, I, I I try to emphasize this because sometimes I think when we talk about faith and resting in the ability of God and in the power of God's might rather than in our own, that we have the picture then that that means we just sort of sit back in our easy chair. i have you noticed here that David seems to have something else moving him. I mean, he's anxious to prove the fact that his God can beat the stuffings out of this guy. It's not enough for David to just sit up there with the army and preach these things and say, now, we all believe this about our God. There's something in the life of David that's willing to go down there in the battlefield and put it on the line. He will venture out and risk his life for the sake of these things that he says are true. Now, that's when you really believe something. You believe in the sovereignty of God? Well, that's pretty easy to do when you're in your easy chair in the living room when you've got lots of money in the bank, you've got cupboards, refrigerators full of food. Why is it that we see so few who risk, venture out upon the name and the might and the power of this great God? You know, This is doubly, doubly condemning to us because, you see, we preach here in this church a great, big God. Right? And we do. He's not that little billion. He's not that little Jesus that lives in your heart, sits on the chair in there. He's not the beggar out there knocking at the door hoping you'll be kind enough to let him in. We preach a Jesus who is on the throne with all power in heaven and might in his hands, whose promises I will be with you always even unto the end of the world. We say that's what we believe. We preach it. We nod our head, we say amen. Where where is the life that risks that ventures upon that belief, upon that conviction. Oh, I'm not talking about some presumption, all of that. I'm just saying we tend to be pretty bold in our assessments, in our statements of God's might when we're standing safely on the shore. But when we're out there treading water, why don't we jump in? We're not quite so sure. About his sovereignty, you see, when it counts. Well, I leave that behind. The third thing I see about David, not only his faith and not only this this active faith, faith that acts, but I see some meekness. Oh, I tell you, I'm utterly astounded by the life of David and certainly place, it, place him against the backdrop of how other kings lived their lives in that day. It is striking, it is amazing the character of David that is exhibited. He is one that it seems there doesn't seem to be a deceitful bone in his body. He seems to be one like Jesus said was it was of Nathaniel, behold, an Israelite in whom there is no guile. He is open, he is honest. Though he has been anointed, let's remember He's already been anointed by Samuel as the next king of Israel. You do remember that. But he is content to take his place as King Saul's humble, loyal servant. He has no desire to exalt himself, to advance his own cause. He is perfectly willing to be perfectly happy to stay in whatever role God has placed him in until it's God's turn, God's time to advance him to the throne. Oh, you're going to see that from one end to the other of David's life. It's exactly that which Jesus taught his disciples about going into the feast. They rang the bell, soup's on, everybody made a mad dash for those high seats. He says, guys, don't do that. Sit down here in these low seats. Down here where the nobodies sit. And if the host, the one who's given the peace, comes down here and says, oh no, you're sitting in way too low a place. You need to be up here with me. Let him exalt you. But the point is, don't advance. Don't exalt yourself. Allow God to advance you. And that's David's philosophy. If God wants me to be king of Israel, He can make me king of Israel. But David was not about to make David king of Israel. You see, here is the life of one who is faithful in the small things. And he will be advanced, been proven faithful in the small things, to be faithful over great things, large things. Can I just throw in my two cents worth here? Is that not normally the opposite of how we think? How many times have you not told yourself, well, you know, if I just, let's take giving for an example. If I just had more money, I'd be more faithful in my giving. Have you not said that? I've heard people say, I wish I could win the lottery so I could give it to God. No, you won't. Jesus said, He that's faithful in the little things will be faithful in the much. Having a lot won't make you more faithful. If you're stingy with a little, you'll be stingy with a lot. Do you see the point? May I say this especially to you, young men that are preparing for the ministry, Oh, of all the principles here? Be faithful, and wherever God has you for this moment, for this period of time, be faithful in the small things. You know, we have the idea if God would just put me in the football stadium where I could preach to thousands of people, oh, I'd be faithful then. My friend, it may be in the, you know, the two or three, maybe in your living room, maybe in a Sunday school class, maybe down in the nursery. Be faithful with the small things. What is the principle? We find it throughout the New Testament, I think, about three times. Over in 1 Peter 5, verse 6. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, and He will lift you up in due time. When He's ready, He'll lift you up. He'll exalt you when He's ready. And then... Let's go to the last personage we see in these chapters. I think the real hero of the story, the section that we're studying this morning is not so much David as it is Jonathan. Of all the people who might have felt they had the right to feel threatened by David, to be jealous of David's accomplishments, to be envious of the acclaim and praise and adoration that, that's being heaped upon David, why, why we would say it ought to be Jonathan. Why, he's the one who ought to be incensed at, at what this young upstart. Here he's the son. He's the king's son. He's, he's the next in line to the throne. And here comes this guy, this Johnny come lately, and, and no doubt word begins to circulate that not only has he killed the giant Goliath, but this is the one that Samuel went there surreptitiously. Uh, that's one of those big words, means undercover. You wouldn't ever call them surreptitious cops, you call them undercover cops. But anyway, he went undercover to Bethlehem to anoint David as the next king of Israel. They knew that. That word began to spread around. Jonathan, this is your rival. And yet look at the sweet, sweet spirit of Jonathan. He loves David as he loves his own soul. There's not a more beautiful picture in all the Scriptures of brotherly love than that exhibited between Jonathan and David. There's not a jealous bone in his body. Oh, he is happy and content. In fact, they go out into that field and they make a promise at Jonathan's instigation. Let's read it here in chapter eighteen. Oh, I'm sorry, chapter twenty. First Samuel twenty verse thirteen. Well, let's back up a verse. Verse 12. And Jonathan said unto David, O Lord God of Israel, when I have sounded my father about tomorrow, any time of the third day, and behold, if there be good toward David, and I then sin not unto thee, and show it to thee, the Lord do so much and more to Jonathan. But if it please my father to do the evil, then I will show it to thee, and send thee away, that thou mayest go in peace. And the Lord be with thee, as he hath been with my father. And thou shalt not only... While I live, show me the kindness of the Lord that I die not, but also thou shalt not cut off thy kindness from my house forever. No, not when the Lord hath cut off the enemies of David, every one from the face of the earth. Not only while I live, show me kindness and favor, but when God has cut off all your enemies from the face of this earth, show kindness unto me and to my family. To my seed We're going to see where David does that Down the road But do you realize what Jonathan is saying here? He is admitting the fact You're you're God's man Jonathan loves his father He's loyal to his father He's going to go out and fight his father's battle In fact, he's going to die Standing right alongside his father But all the while He says, I know You're God's man You're the one that God's going to raise up. And God do for you what He did for my Father. Oh, do you understand? This is something unusual here. Someone who's willing to take a second seat, to sit back and say, even though in the eyes of man it's my lot to be exalted to the throne, God's got that for you. And I am content, I am happy that you be the person that God uses. Oh, there is a sweet submission to the sovereign will of God that you find here in the life of Jonathan. Let's bring it to a close. You know, Jonathan looks a whole lot like John the Baptist, doesn't he? When they came to him, asked him about Christ, he could say, He must increase. Remember, John was first on the scene. I mean, he's there first. And then this John to come lately starts baptizing. But John says, he must increase. I must decrease. And so it was with Jonathan. There is, according to the scripture, an inseparable connection, a link, between what a man truly, really believes and how he acts, what he exhibits in his life. Now, temporarily, for a while, man can act out of character. We're going to see a little later, David acts out of character. That sweet, transparent, honest, fresh young man, that wonderful spirit, is going to become just as devious and scheming as old Saul when sin enters his life. For a time, David became like Saul. For a time, Saul became like Maybe. Temporarily. For a little while. But sooner or later, the true bent of a person's nature will be exhibited as it is put to the test, just as I demonstrated those eggs to the children up here a little earlier today. Even though I can't see what's inside, and you can't see what my heart is, sooner or later, God will manifest it. It is seen. By how we conduct ourselves, by how we live our life, by our attitudes towards each other. What we believe is absolutely important. Our theology must be clear and precise. But theology, if it does not affect the way you live your life, is absolutely worthless. You're just going to die and go to hell a theological genius instead of an agnostic or an atheist. If it does not impact and affect the way you live your life. The whole theme we've been studying in the book of James on Thursday night. The whole theme of the book of James is that you not just be a hearer of the word, but a doer. And it is to be seen. Our faith is not just something we talk about. It's something that acts. And faith without those works is a dead faith that will not save the soul, according to the book of James. And the essential change... You say, okay, brother, put your finger. Let's, let's cut to the chase. Let's get right down to the heart of the matter. What is the essential change? What are we really looking for to happen in a person's life? My friend, when one enters the kingdom of Christ, there is an about-face, a radical change, in that self is dethroned and Christ is enthroned. I'm not trying to be king anymore. I bow my knee to the rightful king and sovereign of my soul. I humbly place myself in the hands of a master to be told what to do, to be told when to jump, and told how high to be told what's right and what's wrong, to be instructed as to how I am to live my life and then go out and do it. I've come down off my high horse of pride, haughtiness, arrogance, and I bow my face in the dust before my God and say in the words of my Savior, not my will, but Thy will be done. That's that essential character change that must occur in the heart of a man. Look at David. Look at Jonathan. You'll see it. Look at Saul. You'll see the opposite. Well, what about you? You say, Brother Mark, I've got all this. I've got, you know, I'm here in church. I know a lot. I've learned a lot. I've got all this. Saul had a lot too. But he never really had anything. And when the day came, he couldn't hold on to what he thought he had. Do you really? Do you really know Christ? Do you really submit to His rule for your life? Do you really exhibit these fruits, these characteristics of the Christian life? My friend, you can fool me, you can fool everybody in this place, but you cannot fool God Almighty. No use pretending that we're something that we're not. Trying to impress each other with how we impress God and impress God with how much we impress each other. He is not fooled. The wool will not be pulled over His eyes. No use playing Him for the fool. Oh, let's not deceive ourselves. When you're put to the test, when I spin your egg, what's on the inside? God puts you to the test. We'll see. We'll see. You say, well, preacher, how do you know? Oh, does the gospel of Christ float your boat? Oh, I tell you, I stood up here listening to these four saying a moment ago. I tell you, as they describe what went on on that cross, I can't even expound, can't explain the wave of emotion that comes over my soul thinking about what happened on that cross. Does the gospel float your boat? Is it Christ and is it what He thinks of you? What He says do, is that what is important in your life? Is that what brings you here to this place on Sunday morning? Is that what inspires your song? Is that, that what thrills your soul? Is it what affects how you behave once you leave these walls? When you're on the job tomorrow. When you're at school. When you're playing with your friends. In your home. Your attitudes where your husbands or wives, your children. Does it rule There. Is it on the throne or is it not? It's a very simple question. I wish our hearts weren't so devious we could answer that question much more easily. But our heart lies, says Jeremiah. It's deceitful. It says, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. But may we put our lives to the test of God's Word. May we see where do we fit into this picture. No, we're not David. We're not the anointed one. We're not the Savior. We're not the King. But are you Jonathan? Or are you Saul? You won't look like one or the other. Your heart will fall into one of those categories. Which is it. Let's pray. Father, one of the most difficult things you've given us to know is to know ourselves. To know our own heart. Father, it twists and turns our heart feels this when it ought to feel something else, whispers things in our ears that are nothing but lies. Father, may we test ourselves by the mirror of the perfect law of liberty, the Gospel of Your Son. May we examine our hearts by the light of Your Word. May Your Spirit search us and try us and prove us, test us, Lord, we talk good talk? Put on a good show? Are we real? When we're put into the crucible of this life, when the flame and heat is applied, are we real? Or are we false? Are we fool's gold? Or are we the real commodity? Give us grace to know Give us grace to cleave to our Savior. Give us grace to admire and to exalt His power, might, His ability. And Lord, give us grace to venture out on what we say we believe. To risk. Lord, may our faith be more than words. May it be demonstrated as we face the giants of life. May we find our God a rock, a hiding place, in which we can rest and hide our soul. Father, speak to us this day according to our need, whatever that need is. Lord, there may be some here who know not Your Son, know not the life that is in His name, still resisting, still kicking against the prick. Lord, I pray that You might in Your sovereign mercy overcome the obstacles, break down the resistance, Cause men, Father, to be broken and humbled before Your mighty hand that they might find life and peace. Lord, others, we who know You, we who have followed many years perhaps in the service of Christ, and yet, Father, we still find the battle against our old arrogant, proud nature. Lord, once again, remind us of these things that we humble ourselves before our God we be content with our lot, that we be pleased in the wonder of our God. If we have nothing else in this life, that we have Christ, and that's enough. May we be satisfied. May we be content. May we show the spirit of a Jonathan who gladly accepts his role, his place, if David can be exalted. May that be true of us with our wonderful Lord. We ask it in His name. Amen.